Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. Mr. Gray, you may proceed at this time. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. The, I'm going to address both issues uh, before you this morning. The, the very first issue is uh, whether or not the defendant, who was a Commonwealth attorney at the time he made uh, certain defamatory statements, whether or not those statements are protected by prosecutorial immunity. As this court is aware, the prosecutorial immunity is derivative of judicial immunity. Uh, judicial immunity is, is, is very broad, and it, it applies uh, to all instances in which, the, in which a judge is acting within the scope of his duties. Uh, the same rule applies uh, to a Commonwealth attorney and, and uh, w- with respect to absolute immunity. The court below determined that a statement made by the defendant, Mr. Baker, at a political meeting uh, was in fact protected by prosecutorial immunity. The uh, plaintiff, the appellant, we take the position that, that the statements that were made in response to a question at a political meeting uh, were in fact uh, not intimately connected to a prosecutor's role in a judicial proceeding. The, the simple fact is that, uh, that this was a political meeting uh, nothing more than a political meeting. The statement that was made by the prosecutor, uh, which he knew was false at the time, he made the statement and accused Ms. Viers of damaging or tampering with his computer to the extent that he couldn't use it. And he made that accusation in response to a question, uh, namely, uh, why he had fired Ms. Viers. Now, as the complaint makes it very clear, uh, the the folks on the Democrat committee were very much concerned about that accusation because Sheila Byers had a reputation not only for being a truthful person, but for being a good Democrat. So that placed the defendant in the position of having to defend himself. Uh, As we state in the complaint, he made a decision that that he wanted to convince the members of that committee that if they knew what he knew, that they would realize that he did exactly the right thing. So knowing that it was false, he publicly accused Sheila Byers at this Democrat committee meeting of tampering with his computer to the point where he couldn't use it. Now, uh, the court below uh, applied the rule of absolute judicial or prosecutorial immunity to the facts in this case, but we submit that there's nothing in the, in the clear facts uh, that are stated in the complaint, there's nothing at all that, 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 that would demonstrate that that was part of his duties or within the scope of his duties, or that at the time he made this statement, he was acting within the scope of his duties. 
Council, this is Justice Kelsey. Uh, may I ask you this question? Um, the, the matter was before the trial court on a demur in something called a motion to dismiss. The prosecutorial immunity under state law is an affirmative defense, and you've mentioned facts. Uh, what actually happened in the trial court? Because it appears to have been resolved entirely based upon the pleadings and a conference call with, with the counsel as opposed to a fact finding. Uh, that, that That is correct, Your Honor. And the facts I'm referring to are the facts that are clearly stated in the, in the second amended complaint itself, plus all favorable inferences that can be drawn uh, from the clearly stated facts. So when I, when I state it that way, I didn't mean to suggest that there was a trial, uh, certainly under longstanding rules. The, the complaint itself is the basis of my argument. And as we say clearly in, in the complaint, uh, Mr. Baker uh, knowingly made a false accusation, and, and he made it knowing that, 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 that the people he was talking to uh, liked Sheila Byers, that they... Uh, and they were offended by his accusation. First of all, they were offended by the fact that he fired her. So he had to say something that was so extreme that, that if, if, if they were in his position, they would have done the same thing. So he, he felt, we allege, that uh, he needed to <clears throat> say something so outrageous that they would agree with him that she needed to be fired. And that's what Council, again, this is Justice Kelsey. My earlier question is, this is an affirmative defense. Whether it applies legally or not is another issue, but it's an affirmative defense. Why was it raised on demur to begin with? You don't, you don't raise affirmative defenses on a demur. Well, I guess that question might ought to be addressed to uh, defense counsel or the, the uh, appellee rather than me, but for whatever reason, the... the the well, the reason I'm addressing it to you is you did not object on, in the trial court on that ground. You didn't say, Judge, we don't need to even be talking about this. This is a demur. Well, I, I certainly appreciate the, the criticism. What, what I suggested to the court is the same argument that I've made here, is that, is that relying on the arguments, excuse me, relying on the factual statements in the complaint, uh, there's nothing in that complaint that would support a defense of absolute immunity. And that, that's, why I, uh, that's why I presented it the way that I did. In fact, there were a lot of unusual uh, circumstances uh, in, in this case that we, we attempted to argue all by telephone with, with no evidence presented. And if there are no further questions on this particular uh, issue, uh, Your Honor, I'd like to proceed, or Your Honors, I would like to proceed to the uh, second cause of action in the complaint, which is the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Are there any other questions regarding uh, the uh, slander or defamation claim? Hearing none, uh, I'll, I'll go to the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Your Honors, as, as you well know, Virginia is, a, is, a, uh, uh, is not particularly favorable to complaints of intentional affliction of emotional distress. The Womack against Eldridge case lays out the, uh, the four bases of a claim for intentional affliction of emotional distress, which include that the 
statement must be intentional uh, or reckless. It must be outrageous. Uh, excuse me, the, the conduct must be uh, intentional or reckless. It must be outrageous or intolerable. There must be a causal connection between the conduct of the uh, uh, defendant and the emotional distress, and the emotional distress was severe. We hang our hat on the Almy against Gresham case. I believe that uh, the facts as we have alleged them uh, are sufficient to survive a demur. And I would ask the court to, to look at the facts as we have alleged and, and recognize that uh, the statement that was made uh, not, not only was it intended to, to hurt Ms. Viers emotionally, uh, the fact that it was made by a Commonwealth attorney carried additional weight uh, because everyone would believe, well, certainly a Commonwealth attorney wouldn't intentionally make a false statement of, of this nature. And, and it, it affected Ms. Viers, as we allege in the Second Amendment complaint, to the point where uh, not only does she, uh, did it affect her physically, she, she vomited, she was sick to her stomach, she was even afraid to leave her own house, and she did seek counseling. I believe if you look at the facts as we have alleged in the complaint and look at the Almy versus Grissom case, you, you will agree with me that we have alleged sufficient facts at this stage in the proceeding uh, to survive a demur. And I would ask the court uh, to, to, to once again look, look at the facts as we have alleged them, compare the facts that we've alleged uh, to the facts that were alleged in the Almy versus Grisham case. And I believe that, that you will agree with me that, that at least at this stage, we have alleged facts to, to state a cause of action for the intentional infliction of emotional distress, and uh, I, I believe I'm going to reserve the rest of my argument for rebuttal, unless there are any further questions, particularly to the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Five minutes and 25 seconds remaining. Thank you, Ron. I will reserve that for my rebuttal. Good morning, Henry Kuehling staff. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021. Is it my turn, Steve? 
Oh, thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Good morning. Good Jib, <clears throat> Gib stated in paragraph number four of his final order that he had the opportunity to review the fight, the field, and the submissions of the council. This means that he had received, read, and reviewed after the first complaint his order on April 18, 2018, and the May 7, second amended complaint and Defendant Baker's May 23 motion to dismiss and demurrer of the second amended complaint, and then Ms. Zyre's reply to the demurrer, where she acknowledges that a Commonwealth attorney acting within the scope of his duties in initiating and pursuing any criminal procedure or prosecution has absolute immunity from suit, even if the prosecutor acts with malice. Next, is August the 1st, Baker's, <clears throat> Baker's response to Ms. Vire's reply to Baker's demurrer and summary judgment. And next, the request for admissions from Commonwealth Attorney Baker to Ms. Baker's to Ms. Vire's filed to the court on August the 16th, which includes Exhibit A and B and the September 4, 2018 response to Commonwealth Attorney Baker's August 16 request for admissions. Then, the September 4, 2000, the September 4, 2018 responses with Judge Gibb had read and which he had read and which he himself had filed to a Deputy Dickinson County Court Clerk on November 20th, which I, too, filed in the second day of November. Having reviewed these files and submissions from me and Attorney Gray, Judge Gibb stayed, <coughs> stated in the, his final order that the subject of the statement was the work computer of the Commonwealth Attorney, a device that would continue contain his calendar, a docket, and other information critical to the running of his office. And Judge Gibb is of the opinion that Commonwealth Attorney Baker's computer was, is, an essential tool connected to his basic trial advocacy duties. Indeed, the Johnson v. Poorman year 1885 case and the Andrew of Ring year 2003 case, both set forth in Ms. Vire's <clears throat> December 6, 2019 reply brief upholds Judge Gibbs' final order stating that the Commonwealth Attorney Baker's trial advocacy duties were the work computer of the Commonwealth Attorney, it being the Well, that may be so, but this this case isn't about whether the computer is essential to the office. This case is about statements made about Ms. Vire. It does have to do with fire, but it also has to do with what he had done in the first place and the fact that he had, had not done this. What he had done, all that is really was said when you see the documents themselves, the only thing that you'll see is that there was a statement about this 
not by the name of her person at all. It only states that this uh, situation did occur. Then, for example, in the 1885 Johnson's case, it is stated on page 6, before the benefit of a public, it is that the judges should be at liberty to exercise their functions with independence and without fear of consequences. At the end of page 7, the case of Stone v. Graves sets out that a justice of the peace was not liable in a court action when acting <clears throat> when acting justly and within the sphere of jurisdiction. I repeat, sphere of jurisdiction. However erroneous his decision or malicious his motive. And in the Andrews v. Ring case, where the Commonwealth attorney was granted absolute immunity, the court ruled that the Commonwealth attorney can be held liable only when they act in a clear absence of all jurisdiction, quoting the 1885 case of Johnson v. Moore. And the common law immunity of the prosecutor, Baker, is based on the same considerations that underline the common law immunities of judges and grand juries acting within the scope of their duties. And Baker's duties were his judgment on matters intimately connected to his judicial proceedings. Counsel, this is Justice Kelsey again. Do you have any case <clears throat> involving a situation where a prosecutor fires a secretary and then allegedly bad her? and the, the prosecutor is given absolute immunity? No, of that, I do not have a case of that nature. The information that I'm talking to you about it, this is something new. And to be of assistance to that, I have this. My office helper here, who has just completed University of Virginia and Wise, tells me this. Everything now is centered on functioning computers and having the office computer not working or being wiped of all its information, calendar, docket, files, is the equivalent of a fire in the records room 20 years ago. The notion being, and what I'm talking about, is that what she came by is that is that is that it's so important as to what it came in and what was was done. Ms. Virus herself sent to Baker on January 12, 2016, which is Exhibit A, a letter to Baker stating inter alia that before Thanksgiving he told her and three other persons at the Commonwealth Attorney's Office that he was not filling Jerry's position and would be bringing an additional secretary in the office. Baker also said he wanted to make some changes in office, in, in office uh, precurture, maybe assign additional tasks, and Baker wanted to make sure we had everything ready for court. Ms. Vyers said also that 
I told you I would do everything I could to help and that I would be just as devoted to you as I have to the past with the other Commonwealth attorneys I had for. But she did not do anything to help the new common, <clears throat> the commissioner, I mean, the Commonwealth attorney Baker. Neither she nor the earlier Commonwealth attorney Newberry made everything ready for court. Indeed, only after Byers' discussion with Baker did Newberry tell the new Commonwealth attorney Baker that he had removed his password, resulting in Baker being unable to access any of the files and office calendar. And this can be found at paragraph 11 on 7839. The meeting requested by Ms. Viers was discussed by both Viers and Maker and Baker on January 25, 2016. Ms. Viers has amended by way of the plaintiff's response to request for admissions that she did write the January 12, 2016 letter, Exhibit A, and that both she and Baker on January 25, 2016 talked to each other at the meeting, which meeting included Ms. Viers' letter. Ms. Viers also admits that Exhibit B, the meeting with Baker, is a transcript she prepared on the four-page meeting. And Ms. Viers also admits that when Baker came in there January 1st, he had one requirement, that his office be ready, and that Baker said the office wasn't ready, to which Ms. Viers said, okay. Ms. Viers also admitted that she said to the new Commonwealth Attorney Baker that she did not know what the office ready meant and that she did not have anything to do with computer with the office computer at the meeting of the baker the meeting ended and baker said i'm going to tell you this it's my career and it's my life too and ms byers saying i understand that and Baker saying, I left it, I left a career of my, uh, for, my, for this job. And Ms. Byers saying, I understand that. And then she says, thank you for meeting with me. Plaintiff Ms. Byers argues that the case of Alamy v. Chrisom, 273 Virginia 68, 2007, sets out the same details and same information that she had stated in the second amended complaint, which is the following. Ms. Viers suffered severe emotional distress, has suffered diarrhea and vomiting, has been afraid to leave her house, and had to seek counseling. She has lost income and retirement benefits. Ms. Viers' details and information to Judge Gibb was not at all similar to the numerous details in Almy v. Chrisom. For example, one, Three persons intentionally manufactured evidence. Two, one person expressed intent of have Almy really, really, really suffer for writing letters. Three, those three persons devised a scheme to falsely accuse Almy of writing letters and that a handwriting examiner had determined that Almy was the author of the letters. And four, 
that the defendants provided false information to local law enforcement officers. I'll state that again. That the defendants provided false information to local law enforcement officials that resulted in a detective confronting Ms. Almey and that he had removed from school files of confidential information. As to Ms. Fires, this is not a case where Ms. Fires' emotional distress was so severe that no reasonable person could be expected to endure it. She was not required to undergo extensive therapy from a doctor, and there is no deposition from a doctor, as was available in the Almy case, and as she, an administrative assistant, advises on paragraph 18 of her second amended complaint that after several months she was able to obtain employment in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office in Russell County as an administrative assistant. I am completed. You're through now? I am, yes. All right. Um, Rebuttal is five minutes and 25 seconds. All right, thank you. I I doubt that I'll need uh, that much time, Your Honors, but let let, let me reply by by pointing out that this case was decided uh, on on the second amended complaint and the factual allegations set forth in the second amended complaint. The uh, suggestion that that the effect on this virus is anything different than what was alleged in the complaint should be ignored by this court because uh, under under well-known rules, uh, we get the benefit of, of any inference that can be drawn, favorable inference that can be drawn uh, pursuant to any well-pleaded facts. And what we have here is, is, a, is a Commonwealth attorney who intentionally lied about what he claims Ms. Byers had done. He, he learned, according to the complaint, he knew on January 4th, the same day that he had fired Ms. Byers, he learned that same day that the reason he could not access his computer was because the previous Commonwealth attorney had removed, removed his password from the computer. He gave him that information, and subsequent thereto, Mr. Baker was able to use his computer. So the suggestion that that he was damaged in some way or another by his inability uh, to access the, the Commonwealth Attorney's computer is simply a lie. But what, what's even more important is that, is that he knew that was a lie when he made the accusation uh, and the claim at the Democrat committee meeting, uh, once again, a uh, not associated at all with any criminal investigation. Now, let me stress that. There was never any criminal investigation of the allegations that the Commonwealth Attorney claimed uh, that Ms. Viers had uh, tampered with his computer. Now, that, the reason that's so important is because if he's looking for the shield of prosecutorial immunity, then, then he simply, what he can't get away with is lying about it and knowing that he was lying when he made the statement. So I would ask the court to simply uh, quite frankly, ignore the argument made by defense counsel because uh, he's overlooking the clearly stated facts 
In fact, there's never been a denial that, that Mr. Baker lied when he told the Democrat committee that, that Sheila Byers was responsible for his computer being in the condition that it was and he could not access it. Uh, I would ask the court uh, to once again review the Second Amendment complaint because that's what we're basing, basing our claim on. Uh, look at the applicable cases and reverse the decision of Judge Gibb Remand this uh, for further proceedings. And thank you very much. All right. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www benglassreferrals.com, and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.